Revelation 3. Last book of the Bible, Revelation 3. We're continuing this series called Apocalypse. This is the book of Revelation, and that means revealing. It's a revelation. We often think that it's a concealing, that it's not a revealing. It's difficult for us to understand at times, and the real meaning can seem hidden. But God calls it a revelation, which means we should be able to understand it. And we've seen that the main idea of the book of Revelation is a legal complaint against the Jews for their rejection and murder of Jesus. And the church is being given a preview, a warning of what's coming. Jesus is coming in judgment, and they should be prepared. It'll be a time of difficulty for the church, but the judgment is targeted against the Jews. And this judgment falls in A.D. 70 in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Now, the letters to the seven churches are letters to real historical churches in John's day. The letters have specific commendations and specific warnings or judgments. They encourage the church to overcome or to conquer. And they tell them how to do that. And while these are specific historical churches in unique situations, there's a lot that we can learn and apply for our life as a church together today. So, as we read the letter this morning to the church in Philadelphia, you'll notice that this one is a little bit different because there's no judgment, no correction to this church. Jesus only has positive things to say for the church in Philadelphia. Let's take a look at Revelation 3, starting in verse 7 and going down to verse 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, as we've looked at these letters to the seven churches, we have begun each time with a little bit of a tour of that church. And for a lot of the ones that we've looked at, it's really helpful that there's a lot of ancient ruins that we can kind of see and get a feel for the culture of what was going on in that church. This church is different. There's hardly anything for us to see today. 
The church in Philadelphia is here, and so as we've said, as we've gone through these churches, John is writing from the island of Patmos, and he sends these letters, and it's these seven churches, and they're right in a row. It's a Roman postal route, so whoever delivered these letters would be just starting at Ephesus and going all the way around and making the delivery. Okay, so that's the reason for the order that the churches are in. It just follows the road. Philadelphia is here. This is really about all that is left of ancient ruins of Philadelphia, and this is not even from the time of John's writing. This is about the 7th century AD. This is the remains of a church that was there in Philadelphia. And the town that this it was in is now the town of Al-Sahir, Turkey. So that means city of Allah. So you can tell this is Muslim territory today. And that's really um, about all that we have to show you this morning about this particular church. So as we dig in and look at this church, I want to frame the message to this church in terms of belonging, overcoming through belonging. They're, they're encouraged to conquer or to overcome, and you're going to see that the theme of belonging is central. Jesus is assuring this church that they belong to him. Three parts to this, and the first one is belonging and reception. Belonging and reception. As we read through that letter to this church, you can hear Jewish terms all through the letter. The key of David, the synagogue, the Jews, the pillar in the temple, Jerusalem. And part of what Jesus is communicating to this church is that they are the true Jews. There are ethnic Jews in Philadelphia that are rejecting them. But, Jesus says, this church is the true Jews. Jesus calls himself the true one or the genuine one. And this is really the heart of the issue. What do you do with Jesus? The Jews in the synagogue have rejected Jesus. They don't believe he's the Messiah. The church is the opposite. They recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They have given him their allegiance. Now, because the Jews have rejected Jesus, Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. They've sided with the liar, not with the true one. They are children of the deceiver rather than children of Israel's God. Jesus is the one who has the key of David. And we're going to look at that a little bit closer in a few minutes. But for now, recognize that Jesus is talking about belonging. Just listen to the language. Who gets in? And who doesn't? The key of David, opening and shutting, an open door, which no one is able to shut, being a pillar in the temple of God. Remember, the temple is God's house, his dwelling place. Never having to go out from the temple, having God's name on them and the name of the city that they belong in and Jesus' own name on them. All of this is the language of belonging. And the reason Jesus wants to emphasize this for them is that they have been rejected by the Jews. For hundreds, thousands of years, the Jews had been the visible people of God, the nation of Israel. But these Christians have been excluded from them. And Jesus assures them that they belong to him. 
Remember that the book of Revelation is written by John. In John's gospel, he writes about this idea of the Jews rejecting Jesus. Let me just give you a few examples. In the story of the blind man that Jesus healed, the man's parents get questioned about this and they won't answer some of the questions. And in John 9:22, it says his parents said these things because they feared the Jews for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So notice, anyone confessing that Jesus is the Messiah gets put out of the synagogue, excluded. A few chapters later, John 12, 42, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. And then Jesus, his own words to his followers in John 16, he says, I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So not only did the Jews exclude the Christians from the synagogue, but the Jews also eventually enlisted the Romans in persecuting the Christians. You can see this in Acts 18, where the Jews run to the Roman proconsul named Gallio in order to try to, to get rid of Paul. You can see it several decades later. Let me just give you an example from outside the Bible. Pliny the Younger was the governor of Pontus, and he writes a, a letter to the emperor Trajan. So this is a couple decades now after the book of Revelation, but it helps us to see what's going on. He's asking Trajan if the way that he's handling the Christians is the right way, since they're not going along with the emperor worship that's required in the empire. Now remember, the Jews were exempt from this requirement. They didn't have to worship the emperor as long as they acknowledged him as the emperor. The Romans had made a special dispensation for the Jews. But at this point in time, the, the Christians are no longer considered to be under the umbrella of the Jews. They're out on their own. And the Jews have kind of excluded them from the synagogue. They say, they're not part of us. So here's a little sample of what Pliny writes in that letter. Those who denied that they were or had been Christians, when they invoked the gods in words dictated by me, offered prayer with incense and wine to your image, which I had ordered to be brought for this purpose, together with the statues of the gods, or, and moreover cursed Christ, none of which those who are really Christians, it is said, can be forced to do, these I thought should be discharged. They all worshiped your image and the statues of the gods and cursed Christ. So Pliny is saying, there were people that were accused of being Christians, but when I gave them these words to say, to honor the gods, and when I told them they needed to bow down to your image, Trajan, and I told them they needed to curse Christ, they did all of those things. So I'm not incarcerating them or executing them because they're not really Christians. Real Christians wouldn't do those things. That's what Pliny is saying to Trajan. And, and it's very interesting. You can read Trajan's response to him and Trajan's saying, yes, you're doing this the right way. And it's, it's an interesting thing. So this, this kind of treatment by Rome 
really picks up right after the book of Revelation is written. And the warning about it is coming in the book of Revelation. So you can see what's kind of going on behind Jesus' words to the church in Philadelphia. The Christians are being excluded from the Jewish synagogue, kicked out, considered to be outside of the people of God. And at the point the book of Revelation is written, there's coming a time of persecution from Rome too. But Jesus tells this church that he is the one who controls access to God and to the city of God. Christ and his people are the true Jews, the true witnesses to the truth. The Philadelphian Christians have little power, Jesus says, but they've kept his word and they've not denied his name. They're encouraged to hold fast to what they have. And Jesus says, if they do this, then no one will seize their crown. The crown is the laurel wreath. It's the, the, the prize that would be given to the winner of an athletic competition. And we know that Philadelphia hosted at least three different games, kind of like the, the Olympic games, maybe on a smaller scale. So they're very familiar with this image. This church, though, finds themselves excluded, not belonging. And Jesus writes to tell them that they do belong to him. They have an open door from him. He holds the key. He opens the door to them and they belong as a pillar permanent in his temple, his home. They belong with him. All right. Now, the second thing I want us to look at is belonging and reversal. And this one, this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. And I'll just warn you, this gets a little complicated. I have to do a lot of explaining this morning. Uh, you might have had that glimmer of hope when you saw that we were only tackling one church, that this would be shorter, this message. It's not. Uh, you're going to have to work hard this morning to hang with me as we explain this because there are some big, big theological ideas that really kind of flow into this to help us understand it. All right. The idea that the church belongs to Jesus means that there's a reversal taking place here. And I'm going to explain that in a minute. But first, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 22. Okay, turn to Isaiah 22. We'll come back to Revelation 3 eventually, but go ahead and turn there. While you're turning, I'll just explain. The key of David language comes from this story in Isaiah chapter 22. Now, this is in the Old Testament time period of the exile and restoration. So we've seen in previous letters language from other time periods. So we had language from the judges, from the monarchy, from the prophets, as Jesus chooses the symbols that he uses to communicate his message to each church. And in this one, it's from the time period of the exile and restoration. A lot of the language comes from the prophets of Isaiah and Ezekiel. If you remember Isaiah, we've talked about it in the past. Isaiah can be kind of divided into three parts before exile, during exile, and after exile. The whole thing is written by Isaiah before the exile, but it's a message in three parts. And the first part of the message is for Israel before exile. The second part is while they're in exile. And the third part is after exile. So chapters 1 to 39, 40 to 55, 56 to 66. Okay, so that's where we are just to give the setting. Isaiah 22 is a story of a steward in the king's household who becomes presumptuous about his position. Okay, so start with me in verse 15. 
Isaiah 22:15. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who's over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here? And whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Okay, so Shebna is the steward over the king's household. It's an important position. In, to, to, to try to draw a comparison to our situation today, this would be like the White House Chief of Staff. This is the person who controls access to the place of power. But Shebna takes to himself a position that doesn't actually belong to him. He carves out a tomb for himself among the kings. Okay, so he's taking a position that doesn't belong to himself. He's being presumptuous as if he himself was a king. Okay, verse 17. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. So God's judgment on Shebna for his presumption is that he will lose his position and he'll be sent into a foreign land and he'll die there ingloriously. Verse 20, in that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and I will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So Shebna is going to lose his position as steward of the household. And that position will be given to Eliakim. Eliakim gets all the trappings that had belonged to Shebna. The robe, the sash, the authority that goes with it all. And now verse 22, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. So the key of the house of David will be given to Eliakim. Now in the ancient world, the keys for these doors were very large and there's only one key per door. And this door, this key is going to be put on Eliakim's shoulder. That means Eliakim now has exclusive control over the access to the king's house. Verse 23, and I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house and they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way and it will be cut down and fall and the load that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. So Eliakim will be given a secure place. He'll be like a peg on which everything else hangs. The whole household and all that's in it will hang on him. Shebna will lose his place. He'll be cut down. He'll fall away. Now that's something that literally happened in history to those two men. But it serves as a picture of a much greater judgment and reversal. This is a picture of Israel and the church. 
Remember, when we're reading the book of Revelation, you've got to always go back to the Old Testament to see where is the imagery and the symbolism coming from that controls the interpretation of what's going on in Revelation. Now, let's talk about Israel and the church. Israel had been the steward of God's household. Israel held an exalted position, but Israel had become presumptuous, like Shebna. They thought they deserved to be exalted above the nations. And I want to explain this. It can get a little bit technical. So here's where you need to work hard, pay attention for a few minutes. Think hard with me about this. If you don't catch every detail, it's okay. God's plan was never that he would bless Israel as his chosen people simply for their own sake. God intended to use Israel as his missionary people. They were to be God's servant to reach the world, but they turned in on themselves. That didn't surprise God. It didn't blindside him. When God gave Israel the promises, for example, in Abraham's day, he gave Abraham promises of land and that his descendants would be a great nation. He didn't ultimately give that promise to every descendant of Abraham as an individual. He gave that promise to Abraham and to his descendants as a nation, but specifically to the representative of that nation, who is Jesus. Jesus is Israel's greatest king, their ultimate representative. So the promises that God gives, he's really giving through Abraham to Jesus. Jesus is the one who receives the promises. This is why Paul explains in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3.16, Paul writes, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. So the descendants who receive the promise are not all ethnic Jews. Okay, that's, it's rather all those who are in Christ. That's who receives the promises because Christ is the one to whom the promises were given. That's why in the same chapter in Galatians, Paul explains, he says in verse 7, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, that's not the point. The point is, do you have faith in Jesus? And if you have faith in Jesus, then you are in the eyes of God. And as far as the promises are concerned, you are a son of Abraham. He says it again later in the chapter, verse 29. If you are Christ's, if you belong to him, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Jew or Gentile, if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, you receive the promise. So what happened in Isaiah chapter 22 on a very small personal scale with Shebna and Eliakim, is what happens on a global scale with Israel and the church. Turn with me to Romans 11. This is the, the one other place I'm going to have you turn with me this morning. Romans chapter 11. 
And we're going to camp here for a bit. And this is a super difficult passage. So I, I hesitate to do it, but I want you to see how this plays out in God's plans. Don't worry about catching every detail, but let's try to get the main idea in regard to Israel and the church. Okay, Romans chapter 11. <clears throat> Romans chapter 11. We'll start in verse 1. And I'm just going to read a chunk and then comment on it as we go through this. Romans 11, starting in verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Because Paul's been talking about this whole idea of Israel's role and what's happening now in Jesus. Okay? And his answer is, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the, the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, Paul's saying now, he's coming up to the present day. So now at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So Paul begins by asking if this means that God has rejected the Jewish people altogether. And his answer is, no, I'm Jewish and I belong to Christ. So every Jew is free to come to Christ. None are rejected or prevented from coming to Christ, but coming to Christ is the only way to God. And it's by grace. You don't deserve it. If you think, like Shebna, that you deserve it, you won't get it. It's only by grace. Look at verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So Israel as a nation hasn't received the fulfillment of the promises because they rejected Christ. But the elect Israelites, those who come by faith in Jesus, have received what they were seeking. Verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So Paul asks, did Israel stumble so as to fall? Did they lose their privileged position, stumbling, so as to never be able to belong to God, falling? And his answer is no. By their stumbling, God brought salvation to the Gentiles, but there seems to be a hint here of an eventual return of the Jews to God through Christ, what Paul refers to as full inclusion. Paul doesn't really explain it fully, 
Verse 13. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So Paul says that he hopes that his ministry of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles will ultimately provoke the Jews to come to Christ themselves. Verse 17. Now here we get an illustration of a tree. And this is the Israel tree. Okay, it's the Israel tree. There's lots of different trees. You have the Israel tree, which is the Jews, and then you have other trees. And the, the Israel tree is cultivated, meaning God has been working with this tree through the whole Old Testament. And then you have wild trees, the Gentiles. Okay, and here's what Paul says about this. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Okay, a little complicated, but here's what he's saying. The olive tree is Israel, and some, not all, of the natural branches were broken off. So the branches that are broken off, those are the Jews who reject Christ. So they're no longer part of the tree. Other branches, wild branches, have been grafted into the Israel tree. And those wild branches are the Gentiles who now belong to Israel by faith in Christ. Like we saw in Galatians. It's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So no one... Not the natural branches, not the wild branches. No one should be arrogant. No one should be presumptuous. No one should be like Shebna. Anyone who has faith, even natural branches that were broken off, if they have faith, they can be grafted in and belong. Verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, Paul writes, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. 
A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So Paul says this is a mystery. When you hear the word mystery in the Bible, it means something that was hidden and is now revealed. Something that was there all along, but it was hidden. And now it's revealed. So now Paul is saying, we are seeing what God's plan was all along. All, a partial hardening of Israel, those who reject Jesus, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And this seems to be another hint that at some point, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, so to speak, there will be a significant return of Jews who come to God through Christ. Verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In this way, all Israel will be saved, Paul says. What does all Israel mean? It means true Israel. All of those, Jew or Gentile, who have faith in Jesus. The full number of those whom God has chosen will come to faith in Christ. And that's all Israel. Verse 28. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So Paul says that the Jews who do not have faith in Jesus are enemies for the sake of the gospel. That's what we're seeing in the book of Revelation. Jews who are the synagogue of Satan, Jews who persecute Christians, Jews who throw Christians out of the synagogue and exclude them. But just like the Gentiles were disobedient to God and then received his mercy, so now the Jews are disobedient to God, but if they repent, they too will receive God's mercy because that's God's pattern. He shows mercy to sinners. He brings life out of death. It's not those who deserve salvation who receive it. No one deserves it. It's those to whom God shows his grace and mercy. Now, what should be our response to this mysterious plan of God. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever Amen. So praise God. Don't argue with his plan. Don't think that you could have come up with a better idea. No, receive his grace and praise him. All right. Now, coming back to Revelation 3. God says to the church in Philadelphia that these Jews who are not true Jews, these Jews who have rejected Christ, 
they will come to see that I have loved you. Over and over in the Old Testament, God says that he loves Israel. He tells them of his love over and over. But now God says, I have loved you. The church is the object of his love. And think about the Shebna and Eliakim story with me again. Shebna's authority over the household was taken away and it was given to Eliakim. What's the parallel? Israel's authority, their place in the household, has been taken away and it's been given to Jesus. Here's familiar verses for you. We, we read these verses at Christmas time, Isaiah chapter 9. Again, we're in the book of Isaiah. He's, this is building on Isaiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Okay, this is a prophecy about Jesus. It says the government will be on his shoulder, the same place that the key to the house of David was placed on Eliakim. The government will be on his shoulder. The key is given to him. And then the next verse, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. His rule, his government, which begins with his resurrection and his ascension and his enthronement, will increase without end from this time forth and forevermore. His kingdom was growing in John's day and it continues to grow today. It's like a mustard seed. It's like yeast in a lump of dough until one day it will finally fill the whole earth. And what does Jesus say before he ascends to the throne? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. Jesus sends the disciples out, leading the church with his authority. Think about the story that Matthew tells in Matthew chapter 16. Peter makes this great statement, this confession about who Jesus is. And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's saying that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and he's the son of God. We saw last week, son of God is a term for the king. You're the Messiah. You're the true king, the rightful one. That's exactly what the Jews are rejecting. And what is Jesus's response to Peter's confession? Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Okay, when he says, I tell you, you are Peter, Peter means stone, small stone. And on this rock, this confession of the truth about my identity, that I am the Christ, that I am the Son of God, on this rock, I will build my church. And then he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So like Eliakim was given the key of David's kingdom, now the church 
is given the keys of Jesus' kingdom, which is the greater fulfillment of David's kingdom. The stewardship that Israel had was given to Christ, and Christ gives it to the church. So what does that mean for Israel? Well, Jesus tells the church in Philadelphia that he will keep them from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. We have two words there, world and earth. The word world is the world system, the empire, the kingdom. Maybe you remember when we saw in Matthew 24 that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. What that meant was the whole Roman Empire. We demonstrated that from the rest of, of the New Testament. So it's the whole known world, the world system, the empire. When Daniel had his vision of the four kingdoms, it's the four worlds, the four systems, the four empires. So there's a time of trouble coming on the whole known world, the whole Roman Empire. But the word earth is a word that we've often seen translated as land. It means a particular piece of dirt, a particular property, piece of property. Most often it's referring to the land of Israel. So the tribes of the earth or the tribes of the land is speaking about the tribes of Israel. And here the tribulation that's coming on the whole empire will be, at least in part, to try those who dwell in the land, the Jews. In the Old Testament, that kind of phrase is used most often when God is about to bring judgment. Sometimes it's used of the pagans in their lands, but then it's used of Israel in their land. And it communicates the idea that a nation is a, has been disobedient or they've been evil and they're about to be destroyed and driven from the land. There's judgment coming on the Jews, Jesus is saying, because they have rejected and murdered him. And by the way, that phrase is used 12 times in the book of Revelation, possibly symbolically once for each tribe. But there's also a note of hope here. When you read the Old Testament, you have other nations that persecute Israel. Some of the big ones are Egypt and Babylon. Now, the way that Jesus paints the picture, Israel has taken the place of those nations as the persecutor of God's people. Israel is persecuting God's people. This is the reversal from the Old Testament. But Jesus says that he will make them, the Jews, come and bow down before your feet. Jesus is picking up, again, Old Testament prophetic language, but with a twist. In the Old Testament, this language was used to describe what the pagan nations would do. They would come and bow down before Israel. But now Jesus says that the Jews will bow down before the church because the Jews have taken the place of the nations by rejecting Jesus and the church has taken the place of Israel by faith in Jesus, just like Eliakim replaced Shebna. And there are lots of verses that speak like this. Let me just give you one example. This is from Isaiah chapter 60. So we're in that third part of Isaiah after exile, prophesying about the kingdom. Isaiah 60, verse 14. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. 
So the descendants of the persecutors, the Jews, will bow down before the ones who were persecuted, the church. And those who had been persecuted, the church, will be recognized as the city of the Lord. What does Jesus say to the church in Philadelphia? I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. Remember, when we get to the end of the book, I saw the bride coming down out of heaven. It's the city, right? The city is coming down adorned like a bride. The bride is the city. Here we have the name of the city is put on the church. This is a fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied, but with this great big twist, this reversal. Israel has taken the place of the persecuting pagans and the church has taken the place of the people of God. But note what that means for Israel. They come and bow down. They're submitting to Jesus. This seems to align with what Paul wrote in Romans 11 about their full inclusion. Whatever it means, we can see for sure this much. For the Jews to return to God, there's only one way. They must come through Jesus. Jesus is the true one, the genuine one. And for the Jews to return, they must come through him. And that means they must come into the church which is the true Israel made up of Jew and Gentile, all who have faith in Jesus. Deep breath. Okay, now the last part, and this is much easier to grasp, okay? Belonging and role. This last part that I want you to see has to do with the church's role. Since they belong to Christ, what is their role now? And there's three parts to this. The first is this, Jesus says, that the one who conquers or overcomes, he will make a pillar in the temple of his God and never shall he go out of it. So this communicates permanence. A pillar is permanent. Never going out, that's permanent. When Jesus talks about pillars in the temple, he's likely got Solomon's temple in mind. Solomon's temple had a lot of pillars. There was the house of the forest of Lebanon, which had 45 pillars, three rows of 15, and each pillar was a cedar pillar, 45 feet high. And the hall of pillars had a porch in front with pillars and a canopy over the entrance. But the temple pillars that are most likely in Jesus' mind here are the two bronze pillars that guard the entrance to the temple. They were named Yachin and Boaz. Boaz is a name from David's family line. It's a kingly name. Yachin was a priestly name. It's the name of a priest who was given privileged access to the temple. And it's a priestly priestly name. So we have priest and king. When Jesus tells the church in Philadelphia that they will be pillars in the temple, he's telling them they will be priests and kings in God's temple forever, permanently. First Peter 2, Peter writes to the believers about belonging to God, and he points out, verse 4, that Jesus is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So what the world rejects is not most important, but rather what God chooses, what God accepts, and that even happened to Jesus. Then the next verse, verse 5, 
he writes to the believers, he says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a temple, to be a holy priesthood. So the believers, Peter says, are going to be priests. And then a few verses later, he says, he says you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This is Old Testament language that's used of Israel. Peter now applies the same language to the church. And did you catch what he said? A royal priesthood, royal king, priesthood, priest, priests and kings. That's the role that the church takes on. Priests and kings, Yachin and Boaz, pillars in the temple of God, permanent and privileged. In Philadelphia, the church was excluded, kicked out of the synagogue, and Jesus says, you belong to me. You are kings and priests who will serve in my house forever. The second thing, Jesus communicates their role because they belong to him in a second way as well. He speaks of giving them a name, giving them a name. This is verse 12 of Revelation 3. He says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. And then at the end of the verse, my own new name. In the Old Testament, God's name was placed on all the Israelites. For example, the way that God gave the instructions for Aaron to give the blessing as priest. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus shall you bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Having the Lord's name put upon you means receiving blessing and favor from the Lord because you belong to him. We've seen that a lot of what John records in Jesus's letter to the Philadelphian church is language and symbols that came from the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah actually connects this idea of the name with the temple. So we've got being pillars in the temple, we've got a name, and Isaiah connects the two ideas. And again, this is in the last section of Isaiah. This is Isaiah 56. There's a description now, get this, of foreigners, Gentiles, being brought in and included in the kingdom, non-Israelites that the Lord says belong. And in Isaiah 56, verse 5, we read, And I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So we have within my house, my temple, a monument, a pillar, and a name, better than sons and daughters, an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. It's basically the same imagery Jesus uses to assure the church in Philadelphia that they belong to him. So the church that overcomes will be a pillar in the temple of God. They'll have a new name. And one more thing describes their role because they belong to Christ. They receive his favor. They receive his favor. And this is kind of just putting the whole picture together. This is not really pointing at one particular phrase. Jesus favors them. 
favors them with an open door. He favors them with his love. He favors them with protection in the time of trouble. He favors them with position as a pillar in the temple. He favors them with a new name. The key thing to recognize is Jesus evaluates them and says, verse 8, you have but little power. They're not impressive. They're not influential in their community. They're not a church like Sardis, like we saw last week, that had a great reputation on the outside, even though they were dead on the inside. This church is the opposite. They have little strength, little power. So why does Jesus favor them? Not because of their strength, not because of their potential, simply because they've been faithful. They've kept his word. They've not denied his name, and they've endured with patience. That's it. And Jesus says, hold fast to what you have. Hang on. Sometimes that's all you can do. Hang on. Be faithful. What did that look like in Philadelphia? You have kept my word, he says. They read his word and obeyed it. Do you do that? Do you treasure his word? Of all the things that you value, where does God's word rank? If you used your calendar schedule as a measurement, where would God's word rank? Or if you used your bank account as a measurement, where would God's word rank? Or if you used your choices and decisions as a measurement, where would God's word rank? You have kept my word, he says. You have not denied my name. They were pressured to deny Jesus, but they didn't. They stayed loyal. They were unashamed. Are you unashamed? Are you loyal to Jesus? This week, we saw the story that hackers released the names of those who supported the Canadian trucker convoy through Give, Send, Go. And the media did their best to expose those who donated. And there were different responses when people were confronted with this. Hey, you gave to this. Some backtracked. I was wrong. I shouldn't have donated to them. Some remained loyal. Yes, I donated. I believe in freedom and I support them. So five years from now, if your bank accounts are exposed and they see that you've given to Icon Church or some other Christian cause or ministry, what will your response be? Self-preservation? Will that kick in? Try to backtrack and hide? Deny any association with Christ? Or will loyalty, loyalty to Christ be the priority? Jesus says to this church in Philadelphia, you have not denied my name. This church had little strength. These words of commendation that Jesus gives, it's like they bounce back and forth between, hey, good job on this, and here's what I've done, and good job on this, and here's what I will do for you. It's, it's what they've done, and it's what Jesus is doing for them. The church had little strength. That's just the kind of people God loves to favor. The treasure of the gospel is put in weak, earthen, clay vessels. Why? Paul writes, he says, 
we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You have little power, that's not a problem. That's exactly who God favors. God's favor was shown to us at the cross. Jesus took our sins on himself on the cross. Why? Because we were weak, unable to do anything about them. And he gives us his righteousness because we have little strength. We can't achieve righteousness ourselves. So Paul writes to the Romans, chapter 5, for while we were still weak, little strength, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, his favor to us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The church in Philadelphia sets a great example for us of the church that God favors. Not strong in and of themselves, but they kept his word, they didn't deny his name, and they had patient endurance. Let's strive to be like this church. Lord, I pray as we consider these words in this letter to the church in Philadelphia that you would encourage our hearts. I also pray that you would challenge us that, that if there's places where, where we need to be called to account, where we need to repent of sin, that you would show us those things. But we hear that message this morning, hold fast. And I pray that you'd give us the ability to hold fast, that we would be loyal to you above all else. We thank you that you have chosen to use the weak because that's us. And it's not because of anything in us. It's purely because of your grace. We don't want to be like Shebna. We don't want to become presumptuous. We want to always remember that what we have is a gift from you. It's not because we deserve it. It's not because we've earned it. It's not because of anything in us. It's simply because of your grace and your mercy shown to us in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.